Welcome to the Immortal Souls Podcast, where we explore the history, stories, myths, legends, and hype that make shoes what they are today. We are Jared and Nick, two brothers with a passion for shoes. We are excited to have you along for the journey. In today's show, we will be resuming our view from 30,000 feet of the evolution of shoes and the innovations that have shaped them into becoming the staple of modern-day living that they are. In Part 1, we covered the prehistoric ages, ancient civilizations, and some of the earliest examples of shoes found. Ultimately, these earliest models of shoes changed the way people walked, altered the anatomical evolution of humans, increased their mobility and ability to cover rough terrain, and today, in Part 2... We are going to take a look at some styles and developments in shoes from the Middle Ages through today. Now, if you remember, some of the main moments in shoe evolution we covered in part one of our shoe history overview included discovery of the earliest known shoes, which were constructed from plant materials and dated back to about 8000 BC. We know from pictorial and anthropological evidence that shoes likely existed quite a while before these first physical shoes. We also looked at the earliest known leather shoes, dating back to around 3500 BC. We briefly discussed sandals, a style of shoe used across many ancient cultures and time periods. Some sources claim that the Christian Roman Empire banned sandals for nearly a thousand years as they were deemed inappropriate to wear in mixed company. This likely would have happened sometime around or after 323 AD when Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. During this time, many of the sandals worn were mostly by monks in the monasteries who maintained the practice of wearing sandals for religious reasons. Many changes took place in the world as the Roman Empire crumbled and the Middle Ages began. One thing that did not change, however, was the prevalent use of leather in shoes. The most common element used in the making of medieval shoes was leather. Its quality, however, varied over the centuries. During the early medieval times, leather of low quality was used, while late medieval times opened up European trade with the rest of the world, and high-quality leather became more accessible. Other materials used in making shoes included wool and fur. Also, during the Middle Ages, we begin to see the first signs of fashionable excess in shoes. In terms of shoe design, the 11th and 12th centuries were dominated by conically tapering shoe tips and pointy heels. In the 14th and 15th centuries, these features were integrated into the notorious Krakow shoe. The name Krakow stems from the belief that the shoe originated in some way from the city Krakow, which is located in modern-day Poland. This style is what may come to mind for many of you when you think of the stereotypical medieval shoe. The toes of these shoes bent upwards and ended in a fine point known as a poulain. 
the length of the toe served as a striking indicator of the wearer's social status. Toe length was strictly regulated and size mattered a lot. For example, princes and earls wore poulains with a length of 2.5 feet, while knights had to make do with a length of about a foot and a half. Regular citizens and farmers wore shoes with a poulain length of a mere half of a foot. In order to protect these delicate shoes from dampness and cool temperatures, they were sometimes mounted onto wooden platforms known as patents. Medieval patents were known in English by the terms patens, clogs, and galoshes. Medieval and early modern overshoes are now all usually referred to as patents out of convenience. Patents functioned to elevate the foot above the mud and the dirt, which was found on the street and also the human and animal waste. This is obviously a period when road and urban paving was very minimal. So you can imagine this condition of the streets that you had to walk in. The word patent itself probably derives from the old French pâté, meaning hoof or paw. And women actually continued to wear patents in muddy conditions until the 19th or even the early 20th century. Towards the end of the 15th century, the popularity of Krakow shoes declined sharply as square and round-toed shoes came into popularity. Patents, however, maintained a presence. In fact, patents are commonly seen as the predecessor of the modern high-heeled shoe. During the late 15th century, there were some variations of the patent in the form of shoes like the Chopin, which were tall wooden platform style shoes which reached the peak of their popularity in areas like Venice in the late 15th century, around 1480. Some reports confirm that certain individuals, obviously of great wealth and status, wore Chopin's measuring over 30 inches tall, that's almost three feet tall, and it required the wearer of the Chopin to support themselves with wooden poles or to have a walking assistant come along with them. Transitioning from these Chopins to more high heels as we currently know them, there's another theory which states that during the 16th century, certain royalties started wearing high-heeled shoes to make them look taller or larger than life. And some examples where we see this are notable figures such as Catherine de' Medici or Mary I of England. By 1580, even men were wearing shoes with higher heels, and a person with authority or wealth was often referred to as well-heeled, which is a term we still hear and use today. Another theory about the origins of high-heeled shoes comes from Persia, dating as far back as the 10th century. According to the Bata Shoe Museum in Toronto, the Persian cavalry wore a kind of boot with heels in order to ensure that their feet stayed in the stirrups. Furthermore, research indicates that heels kept arrow-shooting riders who stood up on galloping horses safely on the horse. From there, the Persian theory states that modern high heels were brought to Europe by emissaries of Shah Abbas I of Persia in the early 17th century. Regardless of where the high-heeled style actually originated from, we do have evidence that men began wearing them in the 17th century, using high heels to imply their upper-class status. Because only someone who did not have to work could afford, both financially and practically, 
to wear such extravagant shoes. Royalty such as King Louis XIV wore heels to impart status. As the shoes caught on and other members of society began donning high heels, elite members ordered their heels to be made even higher to distinguish themselves from lower classes. During the early modern period, authorities such as Henry VIII even began regulating the length of a high heel's point according to social rank. Klaus Karl includes examples of some of these laws in his book entitled Shoes. So, as it goes, it was a half inch for commoners, one inch for the bourgeois, one and a half inches for knights, two inches for nobles, and two and a half inches for princes. As women took to appropriating this style as well, the heel's width changed in another fundamental way, such as that men wore thick heels while women wore skinny ones. Then, when Enlightenment ideals such as science, nature, and the logic took hold of many European societies, men gradually stopped wearing heels. And by the French Revolution in the late 1780s, heels, femininity, and superficiality had all become intertwined. In this way, heels became much more associated with stigma of impracticality and extravagance. Consequently, high-heeled shoes began to fall out of favor with women as well in the latter part of the 18th century. In Britain, in around 1770, an act was introduced into the parliament, which would have applied the same penalties as witchcraft, if you can believe that, to the use of high heels and other cosmetic devices. Even prior to this time, there was a similar law passed in Massachusetts in the 17th century, which prohibited women from attracting men through the use of high heels, as they were considered lewd. Violators of this law were promised to receive the same treatment as those accused of witchcraft. So as we continue on with our look at the evolution of shoes, Let's go over a couple of other super important moments in shoe history, which, which transpired around the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. The first one we want to talk about occurred in specifically March of 1790, when the Englishman Harvey Kennedy officially patented the shoestring. It's important to note that Kennedy was clearly not the first person to invent shoelaces. Even looking back at episode one, Otzi the Iceman, and also the Irani One shoe, both of these provide evidence that shoestrings have been around for thousands of years. There are also shoes discovered from as early as the 12th century, which include lacing systems with eyelets and latches to keep leather or plant-based laces in place. However, the difference with Harvey Kennedy is that his version of the shoestring included the aglet a metal or plastic sheath that protects the ends of the laces. If that sounds familiar, that's because that aglet is still in use on most of our shoelaces today, that plastic end that keeps the lace in place and keeps it together so it's easy to string the, the lace through the shoe, through the eyelets. So needless to say, shoelaces with aglets were a hit, as Kennedy's version of laces are the basis of the laces we use in modern times. Also, just after the turn of the 18th century, we begin to see the implementation of unique shoe manufacture for the right and the left feet. As late as 1850, many shoes were made on 
straight lace, meaning there was absolutely no difference between the right and the left shoe. So, as you can imagine, breaking in a new pair of shoes was not easy and was quite painful sometimes, or at least uncomfortable. There were but two widths to a size. There was a basic last, which was used to produce what was known as a slim shoe or a regular shoe. And if a wider shoe was needed, then extra material was wrapped around the last to help create a wider shoe. And for those of you like myself, before looking into this and researching this, who are wondering what the heck a shoe last is, a shoe last is a three-dimensional wooden or plastic mold and obviously in the 1800s, it would have been wooden most, most commonly, upon which a shoe is constructed. So the last used during shoe assembly can affect the overall fit of a shoe, and all lasts, however, do include the dimensions of heel width, instep height, forefoot width. So pretty much think of the shoe last as the anatomical dimensions of a foot around which a shoe can be created. During the 19th century, not only were shoe manufacturers getting rid of uncomfortable straight shoes, and not only were shoelaces with aglets coming into more common use, but technological innovation in the shoe manufacturer industry was helping shoes become much more accessible to everyone as they could be mass-produced in many different locations. Up to 1850, all shoes were made with practically the same hand tools that were used in Egypt as early as the 14th century BC. To the curved awl, to the chisel-like knife and the scraper, the shoemakers of the 33 intervening centuries had added only a few simple tools, such as the pincers, the lapstone, the hammer, and a variety of rubbing sticks used for finishing edges and heels. Efforts had been made to develop machinery for shoe production, but they had all failed and it remained for the shoemakers of the United States to create the first successful machinery for making shoes. In 1845, the first machine to find a permanent place in the shoe industry came into use. It was known as the rolling machine, This was followed in 1846 by Elias Howe's invention of the sewing machine. The success of this major invention seems to have set up a chain reaction of research and development that has gone on ever since. Today, there are no major operations left in shoemaking that are not done better by machinery than formerly by hand. Since the mid-20th century, advances in rubber, plastics, synthetic cloth, and industrial adhesives have allowed manufacturers to create shoes that stray considerably from traditional crafting techniques. Leather, which had been the primary material in earlier styles of shoes, has remained standard mostly in expensive dress shoes and some other styles, but athletic shoes, which are one of the most common styles of shoes, often have little or no real leather, and soles, which were once laboriously hand-stitched, are now more often machine-stitched or simply glued on. Today, there are shoes for everything, for every possible activity, every imaginable color, and in every single style, from the practical to the utterly absurd. 
Some shoes are constructed purely for artistic purposes. Shoe designers have identified at least 100 different styles of shoe by name. Sneaker collecting and sneakerhead culture have become largely mainstream, something unheard of just a few decades ago. Shoes transcend times and cultures. Shoes tell stories. They have been around for tens of thousands of years, and we are pretty confident they will be around for thousands of years to come. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the Immortal Souls podcast. For more information, show notes, pictures, or just to say hi, check us out at immortalsoulspodcast.com, Instagram, or Twitter. Original theme music by Scott Spriggs. Five-star reviews are always helpful and hugely appreciated. Until next time, keep walking the roads less traveled.